0: The second lesson is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant." Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians? And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites were not to listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips?
1: We believe in, we belong to A God who keeps his promises. A God who keeps faith with his people. The knowledge that this is so can be a source of great assurance, comfort and strength. But what if when we scour our souls, our hearts and our minds, we find no evidence of God's love for us or of his presence with us? What if all we find there is a black void which extinguishes all sources of light in our lives? We know we're called to be people of hope, but what if we find ourselves in despair? In that place, every word of comfort or assurance sounds hollow and empty. Try as we might, we cannot appropriate it or see its relevance to our situation. We feel lost, abandoned by the very God on whom we once pinned our hopes for salvation. It's a very dark place to be in. And it's the place where Moses and the Israelites found themselves in Exodus chapter 6. The first 12 verses of this chapter are a disconcerting read. In the first eight verses, God is so positive about who he is how he's remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how the time has come to make good on all those ancient promises and that is what he's going to do for his people. But it feels like God has misjudged the situation as if he's out of touch with his people because all those promises that should be such a source of strength for the present, grounds for hope for the future, they just fall on deaf ears. Because Moses and the people are all in the depths of despair. What God has to say isn't connecting with where they are or how they feel. Before we we peer over the edge to see how they felt all the way down there, or maybe even gingerly venture down towards them to see what it feels like, let's look first at all the good things God had to say to Moses. It's with a certain amount of panache that God declares to Moses, I am the Lord. You need to understand, Moses, just how privileged you are to receive this revelation. Up until now, people have known me as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the past. These forefathers of the nation, the great men of old with whom I established my covenant, they never knew me as the Lord. But now, now the time has come for me to bring to mind the promises I made so long ago and to make them come true. And because this moment has happened in your lifetime, you can know my true name, Yahweh. The name of God considered to be so holy, it's never said out loud when the scriptures are read by the Jews. Instead, the reverential title, the Lord, Adonai. Is always said instead. That's why that's what we read in our Bibles. When you see the Lord written in capital letters in your Bible, that is the name of God. The name by which God made himself known to Moses, the God who makes good on his promises. And God tells Moses, I am the Lord. Look at everything I'm going to do for you, my people. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am God. The Lord, the Lord your God, who brought you from out of the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is a major revelation. This is a great statement of who God is, and because of who God is, what He will do for His people. And time and time and again in that passage, the emphasis is on what God is going to do for you, personal pronoun, and is emphasised each time. And uh, the first five declarations form a kind of A B C B A pattern. If we can have that on the screen, please, Paul. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will free you. From being slaves, I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I am the Lord who brought you out. There's a definite pattern there. If you look at the first line and the last line, I will bring you out from under the yoke. I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Those two kind of enclose this set of declarations. I will do it. You will know that I'm the Lord when I have done it. When the job has been done, the task has been completed, you will know that I am the Lord. The middle line of the construction is the one where the emphasis comes. That's how these constructions work. And the middle uh, line is, I will redeem you. The job of redeeming uh, was done by the next of kin. The idea of redeeming is, is a very powerful word. It was the job of the kinsman redeemer to protect members of the family from servitude if someone ended up falling into debt and being sold as a slave it was incumbent on the the next of kin the kinsman redeemer to pay the price and set them free so the declaration i will redeem you carries a double connotation on the one hand it says i'm your kinsman i'm your next of kin you belong to me i will redeem you because that's true and it carries as well the connotation I will set you free. Because I am your kinsman, I'm going to pay the price and you will be released and you will be delivered. And if you look at the construction, you will see either side of that central declaration, I will redeem you. There are both aspects of what it means to be redeemed there. Above, I will free you from being slaves. That's part of what being redeemed is all about. Below it, I will take you as my own people. That is part of what being redeemed is all about. Because God redeems us and sets us free from slavery and claims us to be his own. And the outer sections of that that declaration, as well, are all about redemption, too. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. It's all about what it means for God to be our redeemer. From all this, it's clear that the Lord. The Lord who does this, and the Lord says, I am the Lord three times in the course of this passage. It's the Lord is the name of the God who redeems his people. And having made himself known to them as the Lord, the God who redeems them, he says, I will bring you to the land I promised to give to your forefathers. It is an immensely reassuring, faith building, confidence buoying declaration. That the God of Israel is the Lord. He's going to redeem His people. He will set them free. He will claim them as His own. He will bring them out from the yoke, under the yoke of slavery, and He will bring them to the promised land. It's powerful stuff. But it doesn't connect. There's a distinctly jarring note in verse nine where it says that Moses reported all this to the Israelites, but instead of shouts of hallelujah and praise God, isn't this wonderful, the people don't listen. They don't pay any attention at all. These marvellous words just didn't reach them because they had succumbed to despair on account of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Their spirits had been broken. They couldn't draw breath to say anything at all. Ever the optimist, God tells Moses to go back to Pharaoh and tell him he has to let the Israelites out of the country. But Moses has become infected with the people's despair. If the Israelites haven't listened to a word I've said, he said, what makes you think that Pharaoh is going to pay me any attention now? Especially as I can only speak to him with faltering or literally uncircumcised lips. My words can't begin to express what you, the God of the covenant, want me to say. I can't do it. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. So here is God, full of energy and enthusiasm, knowing who he is, that he's the faithful God who will deliver and redeem his people. He's going to come and save the day. But his people are just so demoralised, they can't see it. can't accept it can't take it on board, can't receive it or believe it. They are in despair. And that's a bleak place to be. And it's a place where people sometimes find themselves beyond the reach of any words of consolation or any light that can pierce the darkness. How then do you preach a sermon to people who are in despair. How do you preach a sermon on such a topic where where words can't connect with people? And I was really surprised to find that normal resources, to which I would normally turn for information, inspiration in the past, they're strangely silent on the topic. Does my dictionary of pastoral care have an entry on despair? No. Why not? For goodness sake. Such a vital... Thing that people wrestle with no entry on despair does my dictionary of ethics and pastoral theology have an entry on despair no who put these dictionaries together for goodness sake it's disconcerting and strange almost as if despair were a subject that should be hidden away rather than being brought out in the open what does the bible have to say about despair it's there. Job is a good place to look. Since if ever, ever a man had cause to despair, it was him. His words reveal how isolated he felt and how betrayed he was by those who should have supported him. Chapter 6, he says A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers, are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but then cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. It was when he most needed his friend's support that he found it wasn't there. We'll be here for you, Job, actually. I'm not sure we can handle this one. When disaster first overtook Job, they came and sat with him in silence for seven days. No words were adequate. And it's what he needed. It's when they started to rationalise and try and make sense of what had happened to him and to explain it away, they just made matters worse. For the person in despair Well-meaning words can sometimes be worse than useless. So what right do I have to preach a sermon on despair? What right indeed, but you can only use words in a sermon. So I will go on. But I'll go on by reading a paraphrase of Psalm 88, written by Jim Cotter. And Psalm 88 is a psalm that explores the depths of despair. And it's included in God's word, perhaps to make the point that despair can be part of our experience as God's people. Because this was written by a person who belonged to God and who trusted in God. And Jim Cotter's paraphrase is is memorable and powerful. The praise of your salvation, O God, has died on lips that are parched. The story of your wonders towards us has turned hollow, bitter, and sour. I doubt any prayer can enter your heart. Your ear is deaf to my cry. Soul deep I am full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I totter, On the edge of the abyss, ghostly, ghastly, shriveled. I'm like the wounded in war that stagger, like a corpse strewn out on the battlefield. I belong no more to my people. I am cut off from your presence, O God. You have put me in the lowest of dungeons, in a pit of scurrying rats. To a wall that drips with water, I am chained. My feet sink into mud. I feel nothing but a pounding in my head. Surges of pain overwhelm me. I cannot endure this suffering, this furious onslaught so searing. I can remember no time without terror, without turmoil and trouble of mind. I've been dying since the day of my birth. God, have I ever really existed? I've never known who I am. And even my friends who once loved me, who gave me some sense of belonging, have drawn back in horror and left me. My sight fails me because of my trouble. There is no light in the place of deep dark. I am alone, bewildered, and lost. Yet I cannot abandon you, God. Day after day I cry out to you. Early in the morning I pray in your absence. Do you work wonders among the tombs? Shall the dead rise up and praise you? Will your loving kindness reach to the grave, your faithfulness to the place of destruction? Are the stories of old an illusion? Will you again do what is right in the land? Psalms are full of psalms which express those kind of emotions to God. Usually... There is an uplift at the end. God comes through and there's a declaration of, you know, thank you God for your mercy, for your faithfulness. I see you now. I'm rejoicing in your salvation. Psalm 88 just ends with the unanswered questions. Just the lament and the voice of despair. Somebody else who experienced despair was the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he speaks of being so utterly, so unbearably crushed that he despaired of life itself. He felt he'd received a death sentence. That sounds like despair to me. Anthony Harvey has analyzed Paul's experiences. Paul Pro- was probably a sick man. No family to support him financially while he was ill. Actually, in that culture, there was a tendency for illness to provoke a reaction of being shunned and isolated it would have tested his faith. Here he was, appointed by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet here he was at death's door. That just didn't make any sense at all. This period of weakness and incapacity was a profound shock for Paul. His confidence would have been shattered by an experience that made no sense whatsoever all the traditional avenues of faith and support and understanding and confidence in God were denied to him at that moment in time. His earthenware vessel wasn't just chipped or cracked, it was actually broken. And all the usual religious explanations for what he was undergoing were just totally inadequate. Inadequate. True, once he emerged from the depths of the experience, he could say it taught him to trust in the God who raises the dead. But he couldn't see that at the time. Harvey suggests that out of his experience, Paul came to perceive that involuntary and innocent suffering was like carrying around in your own body The corpse-like condition of Christ on the cross. Being identified with Jesus in the depths. Or maybe Jesus identifying with us in the depths. The disfigurement and the decay he was undergoing understood in some measure as filling up in his own flesh the measure of Christ's sufferings. In the depths of our despair, where there are no words, we do find Jesus there, hanging on a cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we need to know that. Because when the promises of restoration and relief fail to penetrate to the depths of our soul, we have the image of Christ crucified. Embracing the depths of our despair, of our suffering, of our mortality, of our God-forsakenness. And there we find God as our Redeemer. Not with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, but with outstretched arms on the cross. Identifying with us in our brokenness, welcoming us and claiming us as his own in the depths of despair. So even in that sense of complete and utter abandonment, you are still united with Christ, even though you may not feel it And he will stay right down there in the depths with you for as long as it takes until you come back up to the surface again. There is no rationale for despair. There are no words. But there is Jesus. And when you cannot summon up an ounce of faith or trust in him, he will never let go of you. Because he is the Lord. He is your Redeemer. He claims you as his own. And he will keep you until the time comes for him to set you free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you bowed your head and died, a great darkness covered the land. We pray for those who find a great darkness has covered their hearts and their lives. Lord in your passion you felt abandoned isolated derelict you are the one you are one with all who suffer all who suffer pain and torment of body and mind Be to us the light that has never been mastered. Pierce the darkness which surrounds and engulfs us so that we may know within ourselves acceptance, forgiveness, peace. Free us from self-reproach and recrimination and enable us to find in the pattern of your dying and rising new understanding and purpose for our lives. When we have no strength of our own, hold on to us and be with us and keep us in the depths. We ask in your name. Amen.